Well, we are in a series, a short three-week series called Sozo, Discovering Salvation, and we've been talking about what salvation means, what Jesus had in mind when he came to save people on earth. So last week we talked about what we are saved into, that the kingdom of heaven is not so much about relocation, a place that we will go to, although it is a place that we are going to go to. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, he's prepared a place that after we die, we will be with God forever and eternity. And last week we talked about the primary uh, truth about heaven is heaven will be life with God. Heaven will be life with God. And that life with God was never meant to begin when we die. But Jesus talked about bringing heaven to earth so that life with God through the power of his spirit can begin right now here on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is what Jesus taught his followers to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And today... I want to talk about the salvation experience itself. When I was four years old, I remember having dinner with my family and our apartment in Renton. And I asked my mom, I think we had, I had just gone to church and I asked her, mom, what is heaven? And heaven said, and my, my mom said, well, heaven is a place that you go to uh, when you die for those who believe in Jesus. And I began to ask questions at the dinner table. And that night when I was four years old, I vividly remember, I, I vividly remember crawling to the top of my bunk bed and kneeling at the top of my bunk bed and asking the Lord to live in my heart and to be my Lord and Savior when I was four years old. But throughout the years after that, I kept on sinning. And I thought to myself, I must have done this wrong. Because after you say yes to Jesus... Your life is supposed to get better, right? Things are supposed to get easier, and we are supposed to stop sinning. Wait a second. Something is wrong. I must have prayed the prayer wrong. And so throughout the years, I gave my heart to Jesus again and again at youth camps and conferences and after powerful church sermons. And when I was younger, I questioned whether or not I was truly saved. And I I, I feared that if Jesus returned while I was committing a sin... I would miss the rapture, and I would be destined for eternity in hell. And I always asked the question, I always wondered, am I really in? Did I really make it? Am I in? Have I met heaven's minimum entrance requirements? I know that I'm not the only one. I know that if you grew up with, this, with the Left Behind series, just like I did, you were scared. You were afraid that one day you'd wake up and your parents' clothes would be lying on the bed and they'd be somewhere else. Oh, I missed it. See, the problem wasn't that I said the prayer incorrectly when I was four. It was that my definition of salvation was too small. And I think many of us have a definition of salvation that is just too small. And this morning I want to try to enlarge that definition and talk more about what Jesus described as a saving experience with him. You know, a friend of mine came into the office uh, last night when I was preparing for the message. Brad stopped by and we started talking about salvation. And he asked me the question, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And we had this really great conversation back and forth. But by, after about an hour of talking, I realized, you know what? I think this is the wrong question. I don't think the question is, do you believe in once saved, always saved? I think the question, the better question should be, what is salvation? 
What do you mean when you talk about salvation? If by salvation you mean you said a magic prayer that suddenly gave you a golden ticket to heaven and now you don't have to do anything else on earth, that's not what salvation is. Salvation is a daily, is giving yourself daily to Jesus again and again and trusting that his grace has now covered a lifetime of your sin. And not only that, but has empowered you to do the work of the kingdom of God here on earth through the power of his spirit. The question should be, what is salvation? And when I was younger, I saw salvation as my application to heaven being accepted rather than receiving life from Jesus from one moment to the next. Are you tracking with me? Am I making sense? Are you thinking, yeah, I've thought that about salvation too. I hope you are. I hope I'm not the only one. Sozo is, oh, hello. There's a uh, person talking out here. Sozo is the Greek word that's often translated to save. The Greek word translated to save, but it can also be translated to heal, to deliver, to make whole. See, Jesus just doesn't just want to save people from the punishment of sin. He wants to save people from sin itself, from its desires, from its motivations, from the, 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 the force behind sin that, that enables us and, 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 and animates us to do things that are not of God. He came to save us from sin itself. He isn't just trying to get you into heaven. He wants to get heaven into people. To completely heal and deliver us and make us whole in this life. And this is why the primary synonym for salvation in the Bible is life. It's life. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Salvation isn't so much about what God wants to do to you, to take you to heaven, to relocate you. It's about more what he wants to do in you and through you. And the problem is that it's so much easier to say a prayer than it is to follow Jesus and live like him, isn't it? There's a prime example in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It's the story of the rich, the rich young man who came to Jesus. And it says in Mark 10, 17, And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Isn't this the question that we often ask? God, what do I have to do to experience eternal life? Such an honest question. And this is what Jesus said. He said, absolutely nothing. Just believe a thought and you're good. Now, what did Jesus say? He said, you know the commandments. He said, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, hold on a second. A lot of us have a problem with what I just read right here. And you may not even know it. But... Jesus, in this moment, when a young man comes and asks him, what do I have to do to, eternal, to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked at him and said, you've got to obey. You've got to do what I say. Some of us go, hold on, that's, Pastor, what are you talking about? I thought I was only supposed to believe something 
that Jesus forgives me of my sin. I think I thought that I was only supposed to believe something in my mind, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, you actually have to obey me. You have to do the things that, that I say. Now, I want to be very clear here. I think the gospel is adamantly opposed to earning salvation. There is nothing that we could ever possibly do to earn our salvation. It just doesn't come close to what is required of us. But the gospel is not opposed to, uh, to pursuing. It's not opposed to effort. The gospel is not opposed to effort. In fact, Jesus, he, he talks again and again in the book of James, show me your faith. I will show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So Jesus is not opposed to effort. Let's continue. And he said to him, the rich young ruler said to Jesus, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And I love this part. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, the rich young ruler was sorrowful because he was hoping for something easy. He was hoping that Jesus would say, well, you just got to pray this prayer. Or believe the right things about me. Or get baptized at this church. But instead, Jesus told him to dethrone money and enthrone Jesus. Not to earn his salvation, but to live in the reality of the kingdom of God here and now. Salvation isn't about relocation. It's about transformation. Jesus was trying to show this young man that in order to inherit eternal life, you have to be transformed here and now. That the kingdom of heaven has to come to earth here and now. And we live in its reality here and now. For almost all of my life in ministry, I've heard people, including myself, I've asked this question many times. I've asked people, if you were to die tonight, how do you know that you would go to heaven? Anybody asked this question before? Come on, be honest. I've asked this question before. And essentially when we ask this question, we're asking, have you satisfied the bare minimum entrance requirements to get to heaven? Have you done enough to push yourself over the boundaries from hell into heaven? An intellectual ascent of saving faith becomes the minimum amount that you need to believe in order for God to save you and get you into heaven. And then everything else that Jesus taught is optional. Some of you are wondering, well, what's the problem, pastor? Okay, hang on with me. Can you imagine Jesus adding a caveat to the end of his Sermon on the Mount? At the very end of his Sermon on the Mount, he just spends three chapters, chapter, chap, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, preaching about the kingdom of God and how believers are supposed to act and live their life in, in regards to lust and anger and greed and all these different things. And then at the very end, he gives a parable of people who have built their house that those who hear the word of God uh, and do it and actually practice what Jesus taught. They're like people who built their house upon the rock. And when the winds came and the waves crashed again that, against that house, it did not fall because it was built upon the rock. And then he says this, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now imagine him saying this. But just to be clear, 
you don't have to worry about actually doing anything I just said as long as you believe that my death paid for your sins. Hmm. John Ortberg wrote this. When we speak of trusting Christ for our salvation, what we often really mean is trusting an arrangement that he made to get us into the good place when we die. Ironically, people sometimes believe they can trust in the arrangement Jesus made without actually trusting Jesus himself. Imagine Jesus saying, imagine saying this to Jesus, coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I trust that you have provided the means to get me into heaven and I will take advantage of this arrangement to get in, but I don't trust you enough to give you control over my everyday life. I'll use your blood to avoid hell, but I'd like to retain control over my life if you don't mind. It got quiet in this room. <laughs> let, me, let me give some earthly examples for you. Now, I'm a member of the sportsman club here in town. And let's say that you wanted to join the club with me so we can do some target shooting together. All right? Now, a perfectly good question to ask would be, what are the minimum requirements for, be to, for, for me to be a member of the sportsman club? That's a legitimate question. And the man at the Old World Antiques, he would tell you what the annual fee is. He'll give you a list of rules that will, that will provide safety and cleanliness uh, to the range, that you have to follow these rules in order to stay safe and keep the range clean. And then you'll have to sign a paper agreeing to these requirements and other people will even keep track of your membership status for you, making sure that you meet these requirements every year or your key will not unlock the gate at the club. So asking for the bare minimum requirements when you are joining a club or you want frequent flyer miles and you want to be, be part of an elite status, frequent flyer, those, that is a completely legitimate question to ask. But imagine that I said to Christina on my wedding day, Christina, I want to know, what is the absolute least I can do to stay married to you? What is, what, is the lowest, what is the lowest level of commitment? What's the fewest amount of flowers and affirmations that you need to get from me? The smallest promises I have to make to maintain my husband's status? That would be a very short ceremony, wouldn't it? It would. Because marriage isn't supposed to be just a legal status. It is a personal commitment that requires fidelity, a hard limit on sexual partners, vulnerability, servanthood. Now, are there minimum requirements for staying married? Of course there are. But here's the point. These minimum requirements aren't fully known in advance. You, you can't ask for them in the beginning. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If you really want the marriage, the minimum requirements will take care of themselves. And if you don't really want the marriage, the minimum requirements don't even matter. Why would you even ask if you don't want the marriage? In Ephesians 5:31, Paul compares the marriage between a man and a woman to the church's relationship with Jesus, that our relationship with Jesus is supposed to 
uh, our, the earthly marriage is supposed to mirror our relationship with Jesus. And so in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this, is, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's very clear that the earthly marriage is supposed to reflect the relationship that we have with God, and we can learn a lot from our earthly marriage, can't we? Paul describes salvation as more like a marriage than a membership status to something. And we don't just need a future salvation. We need the perks of a relationship with Jesus here and now. We need to live in his kingdom here and now. So how do we define a follower of Jesus? Allow me to use another helpful illustration that I heard from a theologian and pastor. His name is John Ortberg. He describes that there are two different ways of sorting objects as either in or out of a group. Let's put this first slide up here. The first group is called bounded sets. And in bounded sets, there are clear entrance requirements to be considered part of this group. So let's take, for instance, the category of a triangle. Now, to determine if you are in the group of triangles or outside of the group of triangles, there are clear necessary requirements for you to be in that group. And they would be that they have three distinct sides and three distinct angles. So a circle will never be part of that group. It's out. A square, any other shape will never be part of that group. It is out of the group because the group in a bounded set, the group is static. And it's defined by the boundaries Membership is clear. It doesn't move. You're either in or you're out. Now, the other way to look at, to categorize groups is through centered sets. And in centered sets, objects are defined by their orientation to the center. So membership is not, membership is not static. It's dynamic. And so what matters isn't a a minimum requirement, but it's movement towards the center or away from the center That matters. Let me give you an example. Let's take the category of bald people. I'm not picking on anybody in this room today. This is a great example. Let's take the category of bald people, okay? Mr. Clean. Anybody know who Mr. Clean is? Mr. Clean is the apex. He is the center of this group, right? Now, if we wanted to determine who is in this group, we would say, okay, who belongs to this group? Well, a little baby girl who was just born, she belongs in this group, doesn't she? But she's growing hair. So she's actually moving out of the group. She's on her way out. Now you have a middle-aged man with a head of hair, but he's got some receding hairlines. And he's on his way into the group. He's losing his hair. He's becoming more and more bald. Now, we often want to ask, well, what's the minimum number of hairs to be considered part of this group? We want to know as humans, we want clear, distinct boundaries. Tell me, what is the minimum number of hairs to be considered part of this group? And the answer is only God knows. You are not the judge. You do not get to determine that. God is the judge and he knows every hair on our head. He is the one who is going to determine who is in and out of this group. 
Now, some people, you might argue with that definition of salvation. It's just too subjective, Pastor. It's too vague. And it's not. It's simply defined in relation to the center, who is Jesus. Jesus is the center. Here's why this is important. If we think of salvation as a bounded set, we will focus on the boundary. We will try to define what the necessary requirements are for being in, and we all have slightly different definitions of those requirements. For some, it could be as simple as they checked the Christianity as their preferred religion on a survey. Or they said the sinner's prayer. For some denominations, it's that they were water baptized in their specific denomination at their specific church. Or they professed belief that Jesus is God. And if we take this even further, some of us would even look at a person and, and, and say, well, that person's not a Christian because they vote Democrat. They vote Republican. That person must not be a Christian. We might look at people and say, well, that person must not be a Christian because they, a Christian has to be straight. Or a Christian can't have tattoos. Or a Christian can't drink alcohol. Now, hold on a sec. Before you send me a bunch of emails this week, let me be very clear that I am not justifying. Church, I want you to hear me. I'm not justifying any action, lifestyle, or decision that contradicts Scripture. Your pastor's not becoming woke. Desert Church isn't going woke, okay? I'm simply saying that when the boundary is the most important thing to you, then you will ultimately become the judge, which you are not. You will say that you are either in or you are out, and the group is absolutely static based on your definition. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for grace, does it? A lot of room for love, for God to work in the lives of people. And the New Testament presents a community that looks much more like a centered set than a bounded set. And the center is Jesus. Jesus who modeled a life that was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And he was dedicated to bringing the kingdom to earth by loving God and loving others sacrificially. And what's ironic is that some people, like the Pharisees, they worked hard to prove that they were in by reading scripture and keeping the Sabbath, but they refused to orient themselves to Jesus and share unconditional love to others. And Jesus said that they were actually outside of his kingdom. The people that, that most of the people in, in, in Jerusalem and most of the people in Israel would look at the Pharisees and consider those people to be in when Jesus actually saw them as being outside of the kingdom. And others appeared to be the farthest away from God. Tax collectors and prostitutes. People would look at them and think there is absolutely no way that they are part of God's kingdom. And Jesus told those people, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Salvation has come to this house. These are the type of things that Jesus would say to those people. And Jesus got into more trouble than anything else because he warned those who thought that they were in that they were actually out. And he treated those whom everyone knew was out as though they might actually be in the kingdom of God. Samaritans, 
lepers, centurions, Canaanite women, divorcees, prostitutes, tax collectors. That's why the Pharisees got so upset when Jesus shared a meal with these people. What are you doing? Those people are obviously not triangles. They don't meet the requirements, Jesus. But Jesus didn't define people with a bounded set. He said, I am the center. And if you choose to orient your life towards me and you move towards me, you are actually in the kingdom of God. If salvation is a bounded set, then we want to be very clear about the necessary requirements to get people inside. And our goal, if salvation is a bounded set, our goal will be to get people to cross that line and then all further growth is optional. And this is how we've done church for decades in America. As we have prioritized, just raise your hand, say this prayer without discipling people and showing people how to follow Jesus and orient their life towards Jesus. And so the goal has become just to get people to cross that line and then we leave them hanging. And there's a bait and switch because the people who just got saved, they were told that they don't have to do anything. But now that they're in, suddenly they have to give to the poor and they've got to, they've got to serve at church and they've got, to, they've got to do this and they've got to do that. And they don't realize that those aren't things that are required for their salvation, but that we are, we are making people, the goal is to make people look like Jesus. We want people to move towards Jesus. If salvation is a bounded set, then we will prioritize the issues that differentiate who is in and out rather than prioritizing the things that were central to Jesus. We get stuck on our own opinions, and we get stuck on what we think Christians should look like, and we forget to lean in and to prioritize the things that Jesus wanted us to prioritize. However, if following Jesus is about the center, then we will constantly orient our lives towards God and his love. And we will want to continually move toward the center and invite others to move toward the center as well. You see, the world doesn't need more non-practicing Christians who claim to know God but treat others with evil. The world needs more people who look and act like Jesus because they're getting closer and closer to the center. Not as a means of earning their salvation, but as a means of revealing their love for God, revealing that they are living in the kingdom now, that their lives have been transformed, and God is using them mightily. Someone asked cellist Pablo Casals when he was in his 80s. He's the best cellist in the world when he was in his 80s. Somebody came to him and asked him why he kept practicing the cello. You're already there. You're the best. Why do you still practice even in your 80s? And he would reply, because I think I'm getting better. Philippians 3, 12 through 14 says this. Paul says this. We look at Paul as, as the top dog of Christianity, right? The guy made it. He was in. But he said this. Not that, I've, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Why keep pressing on, Paul? You're already there. You're in. I think Paul would say, because I think I'm getting better. I think I'm getting closer to the center. I think my thoughts are becoming more of Jesus's thoughts. I think my attitudes are becoming more of Jesus's attitudes. I think my addictions are falling away even more. I think I'm being used more and more mightily by the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm getting closer to the center. That is what the world needs. More people who are getting closer to the center. I'm going to invite Mary to come up as we close. And in a minute, I'm going to invite the ministry teams to come forward. In a minute, not yet, but... If you're on the ministry team, in a second, I'm going to call you forward. We use the word discipleship to describe something that only happens to Christians after deciding to follow Jesus. When somebody makes a decision to follow Jesus, then they can become, then they can become a disciple. They can become dis- discipled. But discipleship happens to everyone in and outside of the church. Everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room are being formed to look like whatever it is they are following. You are being formed into something. You are being formed to look like whatever it is you are following. So be careful of your inputs. Be careful of who you are following, who you are listening to. And either you are becoming a person of bitterness, unforgiveness, greed, despair. You are moving away from the center. Or you are becoming a person of love and forgiveness and generosity and joy. You are moving closer to the center. This is a quote by C.S. Lewis. We all know and love C.S. Lewis. He said, the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians but still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergymen. And there are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. Jesus didn't have much to say about being a Christian, but he did have a lot to say about being a disciple. What is a disciple? Somebody who follows and models their life after Jesus. A better word would be apprentice. Somebody who apprentices under Jesus. What does an apprentice do? An apprentice wants to be exactly like their master, the one who's training them, right? An apprentice follows the one who's teaching them. They learn from the one who's teaching them. They want to do what that, that person is saying and doing. That is what being a disciple is. It's, it's, apprent- it's being an apprentice of Jesus with this desire to become more and more like him. Next week, we're going to look more at what Jesus had to say about being a disciple, about being a, an apprentice. But we are all moving towards something. So I would challenge you today to take, to take an inventory of your life, take an inventory of your heart, And ask yourself, what is salvation? What did Jesus describe it as? And I think Jesus described salvation as a movement towards him. Not just an intellectual ascent that if you believe these right things, 
you don't have to do anything else after that, I think that's the wrong definition of salvation. Now, let me be clear. Do I believe that there is a moment of awakening? Do I believe that there is an an initial moment where you invite Jesus to take control of your life and the Holy Spirit comes and gives you a new nature? Absolutely. I believe there is an initial moment where Jesus takes control. He gives you a new spirit, one that desires to move towards him. But we are not supposed to end there. We continually move towards Jesus. And we wake up every morning asking God, how can I move closer to the center? I think I'm getting better. Would you stand with me? I wrestled with this moment last night because if you're anything like me, you're anything like me, it is hard to follow Jesus. It is difficult to follow Jesus. It's difficult to surrender our desires and our habits, our behaviors, and we live in shame. We spend so much time living in shame because we don't wake up the next morning perfect, and so many of us want that. So many of us want to wake up the next morning completely changed and not wrestling with our our addictions, our behaviors, our attitudes, not wrestling with those thoughts, but it doesn't work that way. Instead, we continually surrender ourselves to Jesus again and again and again. I want to invite the ministry teams to come forward right now. And as we close, I want to invite you to do something. And church, I want to invite you to be bold. This is not, uh, this is not a place to, to hear the word, to hear what God is saying, and then not act upon it. This is a place to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, can we sing a a song? Um, Can we sing Christ is My Firm Foundation? Would you lead that for us? Okay, you sing it without a mic. Well, we'll sing this together. As we sing this song, I want to challenge you. If you would like to move closer to Jesus today, maybe you you say to yourself, I've been, I've maybe been, I feel stagnant. I feel like, Maybe you feel like you've been stagnant or maybe you feel like you've been moving the opposite direction. But today you feel like, I want to move closer to the center. And I need people to come and surround me with prayer because I need a fresh outpouring of the Spirit on my life in order to do that. If that's you, would you make your way up as we sing this song? Come on, let's sing this together. Don't be afraid. It's in Christ. Christ is my firm foundation. Just make your way up. The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaking Don't worry about what the people to your left and right are doing. I've never been more glad That I put my faith in Jesus Praise you, Lord, because you've never let me down He's faithful through generations. So why would he fail now? He won't. Praise you, Lord. Come on, don't don't let this moment pass you by. If you feel the Holy Spirit urging you to just take a step forward, come and center your life upon him. Come and give everything you have. Sing Christ is my firm foundation.
Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaken. I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus, as He's never faithful through generations so why would he fail now he won't praise you Jesus no he won't he won't he won't fail he won't fail he won't Rain came. Rain came and wind blew, but my house was built on you. I'm safe. I'm safe with you. I'm gonna make it through. Rain came. last night about this message and it reminded me of how good the fear of the Lord is because those of you who are safe in the arms of Jesus those of us who are secure in the fact that we belong to Jesus and we are moving towards the center a message like this only gives us hope and encourages us and for those of us who are far away from the Lord, a message like this, a word like this will awaken our hearts to understand that God is calling us to turn around and move towards him. I often compare the fear of the Lord to being at the beach. Whereas those of us who know how to swim, who have been to the ocean before, you can enjoy the waves. You can enjoy the ocean and still understand that it is a powerful force and it deserves our respect. That you don't turn your back to the waves but you face it 
and you can enjoy the snorkeling and the surfing. You can enjoy the ocean. But for those of us who don't know how to swim and have never been to the ocean, the ocean is a terrifying place, isn't it? We don't know what to do when we're there. We get, we get frightened. And I believe that that's how the fear of the Lord works, is that Jesus wants to teach you to swim in his presence. He wants you to have an awe and a respect and a value for his presence And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would instill in us a fear of the Lord, one that that teaches us to swim in your presence, one that allows us to enjoy who you are. Let me say one last thing before we dismiss. Some of you might be in here and maybe you've been anxious about, you're still asking the question, well, that doesn't, Pastor Blake, it doesn't answer the question, am I in or am I out? I need you to just tell me, am I in or am I out? Am I moving towards Jesus or am I moving away? Maybe you still have these anxious thoughts. And the best thought is not about what arrangement can take away your anxiety, but the best thought is about God. And the thought is this. I want you to hear me. God will do the absolute best he can by every human being for all eternity. In light of the Father's goodness, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, do not worry about tomorrow. And if God can take care of tomorrow, he can take care of an eternity of them. Now, we aren't supposed to be anxious. We're supposed to rely on God, that he will do the best he can. Some of you who have children who are far away from the Lord, who have walked away from the faith. Some of you have parents, have loved ones, have friends. That are, that, are, that are not oriented towards Jesus. They're facing the opposite direction. I want you to hear me. God loves them way more than you ever could. Do you trust that? Do you trust that Jesus loves your children more than you could ever love your children? He loves your parents more than you could ever love your parents, and he will do the best by every human being for all of eternity. Would you close your eyes? Let's close this. Father, I... I love you, we love you, and we say thank you for your saving grace. Thank you that the kingdom has come to earth here and now. Teach us to live and walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.